The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Please join me as we pray. Lord of heaven and earth, we're in your presence this morning. And we acknowledge that you are God, and we are sinful creatures. And it is with gratitude in our hearts that we acknowledge that we can stand before you as your children, only because of the grace and mercy and compassion that you have extended to us. Lord, we pray this morning that as we delve into your word, that the Holy Spirit will open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears, so that we may hear what he has to teach us. We pray, God, that if there are any, any roadblocks, any stumbling blocks, that you would remove them, so that we will receive your word with freedom. Lord, we pray for many of the things that have already been brought before you. We pray for Irma. We pray that you'll be with Grandma Irma and just give her comfort at this time. And we rejoice, Lord, as Milton stands before you, fully assured of his eternity with you. We pray for the Syrian family whose support we've received this morning, God. And we pray that through their trials and troubles that they've gone through, that they would come to know you even more than they already do. Pray for Christians around the world who are being persecuted for their faith and for the fact that they call upon your name. We pray for people who are just being persecuted regardless of what their faith statement is. And we pray for peace and we, com- we pray for comfort And we pray that in all of these circumstances, your majesty and power would be revealed to them. Father, we pray for the group that's present here this morning, that your Holy Spirit will work in each one of us and bring us into a closer relationship, a deeper understanding of who you are, and that you will transform us through your word and through our understanding of your love for us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask this question before we start. If you call yourself a Christian, how would you classify your faith this morning? How would you categorize what your faith is this morning? It is that very question that we're going to explore the answer to this morning. As we get into the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, Uh, We're into a chapter-by-chapter study of this gospel. This is the fourth Sunday, hence the fourth chapter. And we'll do a quick uh, Coles Note version of what John records in this this, uh, passage. But the purpose of a study such as this, ultimately, is to know Jesus Christ more than when you started the study. It is our hope that by the time we get to the end of this study in a few months, each one of us and collectively As a church, we can look back and say, today I have a better understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Not just head knowledge, but a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. That is our hope, and that is our prayer as we go through the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is called the Gospel of Faith, and it's primarily for the fact that everything that that John records in this Gospel has one purpose, and that is to lead the reader to a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Not Jesus Christ, the healer, not Jesus Christ, the teacher, not just Jesus Christ, the great rabbi, but Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, the Messiah, the Christ, without whom nothing is possible, without whom this universe could not have been created. John wants us to get into an intimate relationship with that Jesus Christ. If there could be a mission statement for the Gospel of John, you would find it in chapter 20 and verse 31. This is what it says. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. And then in verse 31 he says, But these are written that you may believe, but not just believe anything, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And to what end is this belief leading you to? That by believing, you may have life in his name. John's mission statement for this gospel is summarized in verse 31. And so the chapter that we're going to look at this morning, chapter 4, ties into that theme of believing, faith. Who do you have faith in? We're going to encounter two groups of people. We're also going to encounter two different individuals who have an interaction with Jesus Christ and what it does for them. Well, let me give you quick cold notes of, of this passage. Uh, at the end of chapter 3, Jesus uh, is just finishing off his ministry in the Judean countryside. There he's also baptizing people, and actually chapter 4 starts by saying, well, actually it wasn't Jesus baptizing, but his disciples. But at the, at the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus decides that it's time to leave Judea and go up north, go towards Galilee, Cana, and all of those. But instead of going along the Jordan River and bypassing Samaria, Jesus decides to go directly through Samaria. Now, this was disconcerting for the disciples. In hindsight, we look back and we know exactly why that was the case. Jesus had a divine appointment that must be kept. It was a divine appointment that wasn't for Jews, it was for the Samaritans. But if we put ourselves in the disciples' shoes, it would be troubling for us to go through a, a region that is not on the best terms with us. It would be kind of like me going through New Delhi, India. Or you can pick your own Samaria when you look at your life. But Jesus decides to go through this because there is a divine appointment that must be kept. Now here's a very interesting tidbit. I find this really neat that John records this. When Jesus gets into Samaria, it says that they came to a well and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, decided to rest. I find these little insights into the life of Jesus as a man very interesting. You see, Jesus was not Superman. When word became flesh, it was flesh and bone. When God became incarnate, he dwelt in a body like ours. And so when we see Jesus either resting because the journey was tiring, or we see him sleeping in the boat, or we find him weeping over Jerusalem, it gives us the true measure 
of his humanity. And what does that do for us? When we go to the last week of Jesus' life and we see him being stripped and we see him receiving lashes that were so harsh that it would rip the skin off his, off his back, when we see him ridiculed and humiliated and spat upon and slapped, his hair being pulled, we understand that he wasn't enduring all of that, all of that in any superhuman power. It would be the same as if you and I were going through that torture, and yet he went through that, so I won't have to, and you won't have to. It's these little glimpses in, into the life of Jesus the man that tell us that he is fully God and yet fully man. And so we see Jesus here resting at this well. What happens at the well is is something very unconventional. He gets into a conversation with a Samaritan woman who comes to draw water. Uh, that conversation, by the way, is the longest conversation that Jesus has with any one individual in all of the Gospels. After Jesus finishes this conversation, he moves on, goes further north, goes into Galilee, where he's received by the Galileans. Then he moves further north and goes to Cana. And in Cana, he encounters a royal official who is coming down or coming up from Capernaum because his son is sick, sick to the point of death. And so Jesus Christ meets him there and heals his son. This is, in a nutshell, what John records in the gospel, in the fourth chapter of this gospel. But in all of this narrative, we find that there are a number of different types of faiths that are explained or explored and displayed by different people throughout the chapter. Some of these fates will lead you to death. In fact, let me rephrase that. All of these fates, except for one, will lead you to death. And yet, there are people in Jesus' time and in our time today who cling to these deathly fates. The first type of faith that you would see is displayed by the Galileans. If you'll turn with me to chapter 4, verse 43. After two days, after the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that the prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. This first type of faith is a faith based in familiarity. Galilee was Jesus' hometown. People knew him. He had grown up there. But it sounds controversial when Jesus says in one sentence that a prophet has no honor in his own country, and in the very next verse, John records that the Galileans welcomed him. Well, I would suggest to you that this familiarity is the celebrity familiarity that the Galileans are experiencing. It is because Jesus was part of their town, he had gone and done some, uh, some miracles at the Passover feast, now he was coming home, everyone wanted to build a connection. Everyone wanted to do name dropping. I think we kind of experienced that a little bit when Jonathan Taves won Stanley Cup playing for Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, 
And suddenly everyone you talked to had either gone to kindergarten with him or gone to the same uh, daycare center with him or played on the same team with him, maybe in different years and different leagues. But, <laughs> but somehow there was, there was this celebrity magnet attraction. And that's what we see with the Galileans. Faith like that is absolutely false. It is false and it is faulty because it has no relationship. There is no relationship with Jesus Christ, with these Galileans. All they're saying is, I know Jesus, the guy who did all the miracles at the Passover. I know him. He and I went to the same wood shop when he, we were growing up. And yet, there is no relationship. Faith like this is dead. And faith like this will lead you to death. I know it's not politically correct to say that, but let me repeat that. Faith like this is dead. And faith like this will lead you to death. Familiarity breeds this even in today's day and age. You may have gone to a Christian school. You may have come to this church all your life. You're familiar with who Jesus Christ is, but you're not in an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. The second type of faith that we see is the one that the royal official displays. The royal official, uh, looking at history, we know that he is related or tied into Herod Antipas's home, uh, home and territory and so on. So he is fairly high up in, in the government. Herod Antipas was, uh, was a really bad man. He was uh, a terrible Herod. Uh, his hobbies were uh, building, uh, building tremendous structures and beheading people. So he would either be doing one or the other. John the Apostle was part of the people that, uh, that he had beheaded because John confronted him with his sin and Herod did, did not like that. And he beheaded John. So this royal official would have been tied with the household of Herod Antipas. And as an official, he would have known about all the activity that was happening within the Israelites or within the Jews. So he would have known of what Jesus had been up to. He would have known of a rabbi who was performing miracles. He was uh, turning water into wine. He was healing people and so on. And we assume that by the time he comes to see Jesus, he has come to the end of his rope. Here's an official in the Herod's kingdom coming down to see a Jewish rabbi for healing for his son. He's at the end of his rope at this point, and yet he comes to see him. Now, we would assume that as this father makes his trek 25 kilometers or 30 kilometers uphill to see Jesus in Cana, Jesus would be very accommodating. He would be very, very kind and compassionate and completely understand where he's coming from. But Jesus doesn't do that. His response to this man is, Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. That sounds harsh. You don't expect that from Jesus. You know, there's, there's this dad who's coming in. His son is dying. Jesus, can you be a little kinder? But I think it points to the fact that Jesus was surrounded by people who were looking for signs and miracles. Even though the Jews that surrounded him had the Old Testament, the prophetic writings, the prophecies, and everything presented to them for centuries. They knew the signs. 
that they needed to look for to know who the Messiah was. And yet, they were following Jesus around as though it was a carnival. They wanted to see the next miracle. They wanted to see the next sign. They wanted to see the next show. And as soon as the show was over, they would have moved on to someone else. And so Jesus in this moment says to them, you have everything. You have all the teaching. And yet you are continuing to look for miraculous signs and wonders so you can believe. You don't need those signs. I wonder if some of the people already were starting to pack up their bags because they wanted to go on this trip down to Capernaum and see how Jesus would do this miracle. How Jesus would heal his son. Would he, would he spit in the mud and make some, make some mud and, and do something with that? Or would he wave his arms? Or would he, be, would he be like one of the prophets and lay down on the boy and breathe into his, his mouth? What would he do? What would be the magic trick? Jesus was no more a juggler would be to them or a street performer because these people were not looking for the Messiah. They were looking for signs and, and mirac miraculous signs. But this father comes with his need and he persists. He continues to ask Jesus for healing. Come down, come down and heal my son. And Jesus, knowing all those around him, does not go with him. In fact, Jesus does one thing. He says to the father, you may go, your son will live. Now the NIV translates it loosely. The proper translation would be, go your way, your son lives. There's a difference in how the translation treats Jesus' words. Go your way tells you that Jesus is saying to the Father, it is done. You don't need to beg anymore. Go your way. Your son lives means that it is done right now. It is done. Your son lives. Not he will live as though I have started this magic potion that will take effect over the next little while. It is done now. Your son lives at this moment. And so Jesus does not give a show, does not do anything, and yet he meets this father in his time and place of need. I think one of the problems that the father had was that he somehow believed that Jesus had to be in proximity to his son with an earshot or eyesight or, or so on to be able to perform the miracle. He did not fully grasp the majesty and power of Jesus Christ. You know, his son may, have been, may as well have been on the other side of the galaxy or the universe. And Jesus' power would still be the same. Go now, your son lives. And his son would have been healed regardless of the distance. But the faith we see in this scenario is a faith that is centered around signs. It is centered around miracles. And the problem with a faith like that is that if the miracles don't come true, then what do you do? What happens if the miracle that you had prayed for, the healing that you had prayed for, doesn't come through? Now, the world will tell you that if you believe hard enough, it will come through. If you believe, you will achieve, right? A number of years ago, I think about five years ago, we were at, uh, we were at Disney and we went to uh, the happiest place on earth, of course. Um, 
and the most magical. We were in the Magic Kingdom, and every evening, I think twice or three times, they have this show where Mickey comes out, and Minnie is there, and Donald, and all the princesses. And it's a 15-minute skit or something, and, and the whole purpose is Mickey giving this message, if you believe, you can do whatever. You know, and he sings it, and he says it, and he dances about it. So as soon as, soon as the show started, we sat down, and uh, we're, we're watching this. And the show ended, and we're surrounded by about, I don't know, 10, 15, 30, 60,000 people, whatever was there. <laughs> and Anna, who was uh, seven and a half at that time, she just stood up, and, and she said, I totally disagree with Mickey. He is not telling the truth. He is telling everybody a lie. He's telling them to believe in themselves when he should be telling them to believe in Jesus. You know, and for... <laughs> For the, next, for the next three or four minutes, she preached the gospel, <laughs> and, and the four of us, we were stunned at what was transpiring, but that's what the message of the world is. If you believe, you can achieve, not you must believe in Jesus Christ. I wonder if that's... If either one of those two faiths are the faiths that you have walked in with this morning, if it is a faith of familiarity, or if it is a faith that you look for, that you possess, that is around signs, around miracles, around things that you see happening in you. And if those things don't happen, what does that do to your faith? The third faith is, is the one that the Samaritan woman displays. Now, the narrative of the Samaritan woman is fairly long because, amazingly, after Jesus meets her at the, at the well and asks her for water, they get into this conversation about water. She talks about the physical water and her physical thirst and her physical need, and Jesus talks about her spiritual need and the fact that he is the living water that can quench that and that, that can satisfy that. Now, they get into a conversation which I have always read with an accusatory tone. Jesus asks this woman, go and bring your husband. And I have always thought that all of this conversation that Jesus has with this woman, it wasn't until a few days ago or a few weeks ago that, that I saw the light, so to speak. I had always seen Jesus pointing to her and saying, Go bring your husband, because I'm going to expose all your sins. I already know you don't have a husband, but you know what? I'm going to poke you, and I'm going to ask you, go bring your husband. See, that's what I would do. That's my level of spiritual maturity. And many times when we come to the scriptures, we overlay our preconceptions and our misconceptions on how Jesus would be responding in an environment or in a situation. You see, we only have to go back one chapter and read John 3.17. John 3.17 says, God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And so my understanding of this interaction with 
with the Samaritan woman had been flawed all my life. I always thought it was a statement of condemnation when it was a statement of compassion. And you know the question that Jesus asked, go bring your husband, it isn't even a very theological question. In the Middle Eastern culture, if I or a stranger were to engage in a conversation with a woman that was not related to him, and if that conversation was expected to go long, you would ask the woman to bring her father or her husband to the meeting. It is a simple cultural sensitivity. So there isn't anything deep into that question except for the fact that Jesus is respecting the cultural norm of interacting and getting into a conversation with a woman that he is not related to. But even then, even after Jesus says to this woman, go bring your husband, and she says, well, I don't have a husband. Even then, we don't have all the truth behind the story. We do not know the story of this woman. We do not know if her first husband met an untimely death. The Bible doesn't tell us that. We do not know if her second husband left for a younger woman. The Bible doesn't tell us that. We do not know if the third husband just couldn't handle supporting her in her grief over the two failed marriages. And so he decided to go and do his own thing. We don't know that. We don't know about the fourth or the fifth or even the man she's living with. And yet, with our own cultural glasses, we point an accusatory finger when Jesus looks at her with compassion and mercy. Not condemnation, compassion. And so when we see her through the eyes of Jesus, through the eyes of compassion, we realize that as Jesus is peeling back layer upon layer of her life, it is so he can know her more intimately and she can know him more intimately so that she may know that he is the savior that she has been waiting for. He did not come to condemn. He came to save. Her response to Jesus is what tells us how she responded to Jesus. You see, if Jesus ran into me at, at a Tim Hortons downtown, and he said, you know, Azar, I'm going to sit with you for a minute, and I'm going to tell you everything you have done in your life, all your sin, all the few good things that you have done, let me sit down with you and walk you through all of that. Do you know how I would respond? I think if he condemned me, I would run as fast as possible. But if he did that with compassion, I would be spellbound because there will be no judgment. There will be a love and a grace and a mercy that will overcome all my sin that he's talking about. And so that's the response this woman has. She sits, she listens as Jesus takes layer after layer away and tells her what she did. And her relationship is so strong with Jesus Christ that she leaves her water jar and she runs back and she tells everybody. Now when she came to see Jesus, she came with a faith that was based in rituals and rites and history and tradition. That was the faith that she came with. She knew her Bible, so to speak. 
She knew all the verses. She knew that they were expecting a Messiah who was going to come and going to explain everything to them. And Jesus' response to her is, I, the one speaking to you, am he. She came with this faith that she was fine, she was saved because of all the rituals that she was practicing, all the rites that she was going through, the history of her church. She was a fervent believer, if I, if I can use that word, because she knew the details of her scripture, of her teaching. But the fervency of her faith does not guarantee a relationship with Jesus Christ. See, this morning, I can believe with all my fervor, with all my zeal, without a shadow of a doubt, that I can fly. And I can get the best-fitting red cape and put a big S on my chest, and then I can go right to the top of the Trizac building downtown and take a leap. And for the first minute, maybe not minute, for the first second, I would believe that I'm flying. I might even sing, I can fly. And then reality will hit me. And the truth will come alive. The truth will hurt. I can't fly. See, it doesn't matter that I can believe as fervently as I can in a lie. doesn't make it true. Truth <clears throat> is absolute. Any addition, any subtraction from the truth turns it into a lie. And so we are surrounded by people who believe fervently in faiths and ideologies and religions that are not rooted in the truth. They're rooted in a lie. Faith like that is dead. And faith like that will lead you to death. Faith that is rooted in Jesus Christ alone is the faith that matters. That is the only genuine, accurate, real faith that will save you in your life. When these three encounters that we looked at occurred, the royal official came with a faith that was rooted in signs, but he went away with a transformed faith. His transformation happened when Jesus said, go your way, your son lives. The Bible says that he did not even question Jesus. He took Jesus at his word and turned around and went home. The next day when he is approaching his home, his servants meet with him and he asks them, how's my son? They say, well, your son was healed. When was he healed? And they tell him that it's the exact time when Jesus said, your son lives. In his case, the miracle affirms his faith, but he had already attained that transformed faith when he took Jesus at his word, turned around, and started his journey home. The Samaritan woman, she displayed the saving faith after Jesus walked through her shame and guilt. As he walked through all of her life, and brought everything up to the surface, she was transformed. She was transformed because it was done without condemnation and in compassion. And in case of the Samaritans, the Bible says that after Jesus had talked to the Samaritan woman and she had come to faith, she went back to her village. The Samaritans came to her. They said to Jesus, can you please stay with us for two days? Now that would be a great, great camp meeting. 
right? Great evangelistic meeting because you have Jesus teaching for two days straight. And because of his words, the Samaritans believed. Even though the Jews had written them off as mongrels and all of these things, they were part of God's kingdom. And so Jesus himself goes out and preaches the gospel to them. The Bible says that at the end of this time, the two weeks that Jesus spent with the Samaritans, these people said to the woman, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. They came to know Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. They took him at his word, and his words transformed them. The only faith that matters is the faith that is rooted in Jesus Christ. If it's anything else, it is dead faith, and it will lead you to death. Some of you this morning have gone through those situations. Maybe you came to Jesus Christ like the royal official. You came in the midst of a dire need. You came with whatever was on your heart. You placed it on Jesus, and you saw his miraculous power, and you took him at his word. He met you in the middle of your need, and he has been your savior since then. Or maybe some of you are like the Samaritan woman. You can relate to her. You know, you've borne the ridicule of your peers for many years. You've carried shame and guilt for decades, perhaps all of your lifetime. You've tried to attain to whatever the expectations are that people have set on, set on you, and you've failed. But then there came a moment in your life when Jesus met you at the well. While you were hiding in your shame and your guilt, Jesus showed up, and he spoke with you in compassion, and you came to know him as your Lord and Savior. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you know that there is, there is no second to him. There is no other name under heaven. There is no other Savior who can, who can take you through to eternity. There is no one else who bore your cross for you. Jesus Christ is the Lord, and he is your Savior. Or maybe there's someone here this morning who is at the well this morning. You are waiting for Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you that he's here. I want to tell you that he is meeting you at your well this morning. There is nothing you have done that is greater than his grace. There is no shame. There is no guilt. There is no sin that is greater than the grace of God. There is Nothing you can do that will empty God's reservoir of grace. He is here for you. Or maybe you are here and you have come from a church or a religion or a faith that placed boundaries on you. Instead of experiencing the freedom, you were bound to rituals and traditions and practices. I want to tell you that the Jesus we know is here to take those bondages away. I want, to, I want you to know that this Jesus Christ is real and he is here and he is here for you. He's here to give you freedom. All you have to do is to accept his invitation. He's telling you to bring all your burdens to him and he will give you rest. As we come to the 
to the end of our service. We're going to enter into a time of uh, prayer. We want to give everyone an opportunity to either set or right your relationship with Jesus Christ if you walked with him before but have somehow strayed. We want to give you that chance. We want, so, want to also give you a moment. If you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we want to give you a moment to do that this morning. You know, it's not, it's not hard. I'm not going to ask you to repeat a prayer after me, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or anything like that. It is so much simpler. God's grace is so much simpler and so abundantly available. All you have to do is remember and go before God and acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge that you're a sinner, and the only one who can free you from that is Jesus Christ. He's already done the work. You have to accept his, his grace. You have to accept him as your Lord and Savior. And Jesus Christ will be your Lord and Savior for the rest of your life and your eternity. When I enter into a time of prayer, I will close the, our prayer time and then the worship team will come on and lead us in one last song after that. Let us pray. Lord God, you've heard the prayers of your people. And as always, as always, Lord, your attention is on each and every one of us. You meet us in the midst of our shame. You meet us, meet us in the midst of our guilt. You meet us in the midst of our needs. You free us. You break the bondages that have kept us prisoners for, for years. You free us, Lord, so that we can live in freedom with you. There is now no condemnation, Lord. Just your compassion, just your grace, and just your love. And Father, I pray that, that the people in this room who've set aright their relationship with you this morning, that you would, that you would bring your Holy Spirit into their lives, that you, your Holy Spirit will indwell them and lead them into a life that will honor you and glorify you in every way. And Father, we also pray for those who come into your relationship with you for the first time ever. We pray, God, that, that you will surround them with people who can encourage them, with other believers who can come alongside and walk with them in this, in this journey. And God, we pray that, that through the life that they live, they will always be focused on you and that you will be their Lord and Savior forever and ever. We pray in Jesus' name. You know, for the last few months, I've been trying to think outside of myself. How would God see the world? How would anybody else in this church see the world? Because only I have my eyes. And that's what registers inside of me. Unless I open my eyes to God. And some of us think we have caught it until one day we get this, I got it! And it didn't come from your eyes. You stopped being egocentric and you heard God's word. May you obey it. Amen.
Lord, our Father, you speak to us in plain, ordinary way, and yet we blind people poke around in all our wrong ways. See ourselves as you see us, and then respond with joy and with celebration. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.